0: Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we are continuing our series over the Ten Commandments titled, Foundational Truth for a Confused World. Enjoy.
1: Thou shalt not kill. Yeah. And the reference is in terms of murder versus simply the taking of life, because there's some aspects of taking life, for, for example, in self-defense, which would be permitted, it would not be uh, pro- prohibited, it's still taking life, it, there's no question about that, and nobody's happy about that when it happens, but that's different than, uh, than breaking the commandment in terms of the intent to do harm uh, in in an uninitiated way. So a couple things that we had talked about last week, number one is, as God's beloved And recipients of God's mercy, then it's really mercy toward others and ourselves is the goal. In what way, I mean, I think we can kind of relate to the idea of being merciful to others, but in what way might mercy be called for toward yourself? In what way would it be appropriate to be merciful toward yourself? And maybe to think about it with respect to what might be an occasion where you would be too hard on yourself for something and you need to be merciful with yourself? Can you think of an example of that? Like how many of you are your own worst critic? Yeah, we all are. Okay. Is that warranted? Okay. Oh, you're not sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, that would be evidence of the problem, wouldn't it? Yes, I can't think of when I wouldn't be. All right, what's the value of being your own worst critic? What's the upside?
2: You keep trying to do that.
1: Yeah, so it would would help motivate you to kind of the do better next time sort of idea. Okay, what's the downside? Guilt. Depression. Guilt. Could you be unfair with yourself? Could you be? Yes. Could you be sort of downing yourself all the time? To the point where whatever value there is in self-criticism is lost and you, you put yourself down. And there are many people that do that. You're not, sometimes we're, we're way more fair with other people than we are with ourselves. And so really that's kind of what I'm trying to get at when I talk about this idea of that that we are God's beloved and we are recipients of God's mercy. And so the idea would be that we would be at least fair, okay, to at least be fair with yourself because, yeah, we all make mistakes and we all mess up and we do all those things. We all have high expectations probably of ourselves. And when we fall short, then we sometimes go over the top in terms of how self-critical we are of ourselves. And you can really crush yourself in terms of uh, how you talk to yourself or talk about yourself. Okay, the second one is that mercy can carry you through even when you are denied justice. And that one, um, that's still kind of swirling around around in my brain a little bit in terms of what is the relationship of justice to mercy. It seems like they ought to be related. But I haven't quite figured out in my own thinking about uh, which one trumps the other one. Uh, sometimes you don't get justice. And the question would be, when you don't get justice, what are you supposed to do with that? And, And if you don't get justice, can mercy take the place of it And is that enough? Okay, because there's a lot of conversation today in our in our world today about um, justice denied and justice provided. And some of it's based on race and gender and kind of all the different things that that people have, those those differences we have. So, you know, if you've ever experienced where you were denied justice because of that, you're going to have a different perspective, than somebody who maybe has been denied justice for some other reason. So uh, that's still, I'm still playing around with that in my, uh, in my mind a little bit. But mercy is something that God gives to us as his gift. Remember the definition of mercy is what? God doesn't give us what we do deserve. Okay, we deserve the punishment from God. We deserve the wrath from God. We deserve all that stuff by by our lives. But he says in my love for you and my mercy for you, I don't give you the thing that you do deserve. The third one is uh, actually this was a question that came out of... Some, uh, somebody listened to the podcast. I know, amazing surprise, isn't it? <laughs> somebody did. And, and these are a couple questions that came from the, whoever it was that, uh, that listened. And the question is, are there limits to seeking justice for yourself and or others? So the example is taking matters into your own hands when the justice system breaks down or doesn't deliver on the justice that you expect. So how do you feel about people that would take matters into their own hands? How do you feel about that?
3: I think there's a danger that you might overreact.
1: The danger of overreacting, okay.
3: In other words, being so outraged that somebody did not receive justice, that your action to right the wrong goes way past righting the wrong too.
1: Yeah. And that is especially a temptation, I think, if you yourself experienced some form of injustice in your life, like in the early part of your life, and then you're advocating for somebody else who also is experiencing some injustice in some form, it's really hard to tell the difference between your own grief about that and somebody else's grief. And it's important to be able to, you can use your own grief to fuel the desire to help others. But you have to kind of keep it separate too, because otherwise it gets all mushed up.
4: Yeah, Bob. Isn't there a, a problem you keep talking about justice and injustice? Yeah. Seeing justice is an absolute. Is or is it? Is an absolute. Yeah. You cannot feel, well, I didn't get justice. Right. You know, many people now today say, you know, we need justice for everybody. Yeah. Everybody has justice under the law. Under the law. Yeah. If it's not under the law, then it doesn't pertain
1: to justice. I think the question in many people's minds, and this is maybe part of what can be a, another conversation that we have about this in class, is what happens when... The system breaks down because of maybe favoritism that's being demonstrated, or you know the idea that somebody says, "Well, that person should go to jail because of what they did to me," and then because of jail overcrowding, that person's not going to jail. I mean, there very often, and I, I encountered this quite a bit in pastoral care is people who are seeking justice from the justice system and then they don't get the justice that, that, that they were hoping for because maybe they feel like the attorney didn't make a good enough case. It's not because of the merits of the situation. It's because whoever was advocating for them didn't do the job they feel that it should be done. And so then when justice doesn't happen, what do you do with that? How do you keep yourself from becoming this embittered person that just is so angry, angry, angry and doesn't ever get unstuck from anger? What do you do with that? And so that's a good question to ask. How do you how do you minister to that? How do you keep yourself from becoming so resentful? Uh, and and distrustful in many sense uh, of the system that it just shuts you down and then that is what defines your life is a question yeah Phil?
0: Uh, I take solace in the fact that in the end God will serve that justice one way or another whether they didn't get it on the earthly plane and if if God, you know, forgives him then, or her, or her, whatever they committed. Then I should forgive them as well. And on that final day, I'm not going to care, one way or another. I just hope that my salvation is secure.
1: So what you're saying is that the fact that you have a relationship with God, and because of the belief that you have in terms of God being in charge, see that that gives us a certain measure of. OK, I can leave that and let go of that and leave that in God's hands. OK, I think the issue uh, that's hard for a lot of people is what happens if God isn't in their life? What, what else are you going to turn to? See, and I think that's the difficulty sometimes. I mean, it's hard enough as a Christian. But imagine if you didn't have God in your life, where where would you find that sort of final sense of of uh, of of? Uh, the idea that God is going to see that through. Okay? Yeah, Carl.
4: In paraphrasing, I can't quote a scripture specifically, but in a number of places, especially the Old Testament, God says, Wrath is mine, not yours. That's
1: right. That's right. He also says, The battle's not yours. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to sort of not want to? pay attention to that verse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The verse, I mean, we kind of do, we kind of want, we want to fight that fight, but what we fail to forget. And maybe sometimes we do realize is that God's timing in terms of his doing something about it is way different than ours. And so in the moment when the thing happens that I want justice, I want, you know, by golly, I want God to act right now. Um, we get kind of annoyed at God because he sort of takes his time. Right. Yeah,
2: Kathy. Um, we live in interesting times, and I have friends on both sides of the interesting times. Yeah. And my advice to, to them is when they're uh, outraged about the whatever, yeah. whatever side you pick. Yes. Is go find something you're passionate about. Okay. A volunteer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I obviously a lot of my friends are now retired. Yeah. So instead of, you know, on Facebook, right. go find something you believe in. And right. Miss, you know, I'm not necessarily speaking to Christians here. It
5: uh-huh.
2: could be or not. Could but be, Find yeah. something you're passionate about. Yeah. And do it. And just do it. That way you can feel some sense of accomplishment that mm. you don't have to worry about the world. Yes. And in fact, I just sent a message to a person this week who mm-hmm. was railing about it. I said, you know, what are you doing? What can you do yes. to make yourself feel better? And, uh, Anyway, she
1: did, she wrote back and thanked me. I yeah.
2: Because she, it's just, it's
1: easy. Off it is, it's so easy to get stuck on how upset you are about something. Right.
2: So, so go find something you can make a difference. That's right.
1: So harness that aggravation into something uh, productive and positive. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah.
2: And sometimes justice does not bring closure. Correct. I have a a good friend whose grandson was murdered and she was in terrific pain for two years thinking that when the murderer was brought to court. Yes. He was, and he was, he was mm-hmm. sentenced to life. Okay, She thought that would bring her closure and comfort. Mm-hmm. And it didn't. It doesn't. She said she felt even more pain yes. because now a second life
1: was ruined. That's right. That's right. And so there's a little bit, sometimes I think that we hype that a little bit and we say, oh, this will take care of it. And so then when it doesn't, then you have to turn to something else. Yeah. And some people, will take Kathy's idea and they will use their sadness about something or their anger about something. And that really does fuel. Sometimes it fuels societal change. It does, in fact. But um, we hear that often stories like that where people they don't they have to find closure in a deeper, more spiritual way. And forgiveness actually, as odd as it sounds at times to forgive somebody for even the most heinous kinds of things. Okay. On a personal level, it it sounds weird that, Oh, if we work toward forgiving, that actually will bring closure, but it actually does. It actually does. Forgiveness is a very powerful thing. But it's kind of counter at times to think in terms of forgiving, because that always sounds like we're letting the person off the hook, right? We're letting the, the criminal go or we're letting we're saying, oh, it didn't it wasn't a big deal of what you did. Uh, forgiving somebody is actually just the opposite. It is deeply acknowledging the thing that's happened and then deeply working toward for, uh, coming to terms with that and forgiving that very, very tough tough thing to do. Yeah.
2: Do you put forgiveness
6: and mercy pretty much in the same category?
1: Um, you mean, do I see them as being the same? Is that what you mean? Uh, not exactly the same,
6: but pretty similar.
1: I would say that one would fuel the other and I would relate them that way. Because
6: it kind of feels like the mercy that God gives us, it has a lot to do with the forgiveness that he gives us.
1: Yeah. I, we don't really deserve forgiveness if you think of it that way. And so but when somebody loves somebody else as God loves us, then it kind of flows that an expression of that mercy would be the forgiving that he that he does for us. Yeah. OK, good point. Any, OK, any other thoughts? Somebody else had their hand up. Not sure. Oh, yeah, Richard. I was looking for the verse. Oh, you're looking for the verse. Sure. You were Googling the verse, yes?
3: Yeah, well, he doesn't have a smartphone. Yeah, I do it in paper. Oh, okay, use
1: old, uh, old, school here. But,
3: uh James one 12 Mm-hmm. God, God bless. James
1: one twelve. Yeah, go ahead.
3: God blesses the people who patiently endure testing. Afterward, they will receive a crown of life that God has promised to those who love Him and. Um, that's as close as I can find to the verse, but the idea is we are going to endure things that are unjust, Mm -hmm. they are a test, whatever, and we have to endure, patiently endure them. Sure. And God will reward us. And I kind of get, not necessarily here.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
3: And I'm okay with that.
1: Yeah, it, it, and it's that fine line between... When do I need to speak up and say something about injustices that are being perpetuated? Perpetrated?
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I need to go take a nap right now. Yeah, uh, uh, perpetrated. Perpetrated? Did I say that right? Yay! I was in my right brain and I went over to my left, and some glitch occurred right in that moment. Um, yeah. W- see, because it. it The question would come up with respect to, let's say, someone who's in a whistleblowing situation where there are wrongs being uh, perpetrated ah, on uh, on on people that don't deserve that in that sense. I mean, where does see kind of where's that fine line? And so I, I do think that there's room within Christian freedom. To sort of figure out where that would be. But always the caution is. Is that if I am a witness. To you abusing somebody. That doesn't give me the right to become abusive. In the way that I address it. And that's where this possibility of overreacting comes in. See. See if I get angry at how you're talking to somebody and then I go and yell at you and be, you know, that sort of thing, well, then I'm doing the same thing to you that you're doing to somebody else. And I'm justifying it in my own thoughts as to, well, it's okay for me to do it because that's the only way I can get your attention. Well, then I'm doing the same thing. So it's, it's being mindful, it's being measured that if you are going to respond to a situation like that, you have to do it kind of within the within the protocols or within the rules that are laid out for you, or you're going to put yourself in jeopardy and you'll be out of a job just the same way that the other person is too. Okay. Yeah. Bob,
4: Uh, when they're selecting a jury, a lot of times they may ask, can you make a decision if there's only one witness? Yeah. And our answer is no.
1: Yeah. How many of you have sat in on a jury or been part of that whole thing? Yeah. We all probably have. Yeah. It's a pretty good lesson in civic justice. Is it not? But you can see where you become sort of, um, I did anyway, became very aware of the importance of the skill of the attorneys, right? And if the attorney makes a good case, if the attorney can ask the right questions, if the attorney asks all the questions that need to be asked, I mean, there's all those kinds of things that play, play into that as well. Okay, the other one, the other question that came up is the question of capital punishment. Does the state's policy of capital punishment, which we covered that a little bit in the fourth commandment, does that violate the principle of the sacredness of life, which is a fifth commandment uh, issue? And it's kind of an open question, at least in terms of, again, a conscience. I think there are are good people of faith on both sides of that issue. There are people of faith who say we shouldn't be uh, taking life. I mean, taking life is taking life. And uh, you can uh, put someone in life uh, in prison forever, you know, with, without parole. And there's other people that say, no, there are some crimes that deserve death. And it's not a right or wrong issue. It's, a, it's kind of a question of conscience. But I was curious about what, what thoughts you have about that. Yeah, Jacob. Jacob. Uh so I don't know the old testament used to say an eye for an eye. Eye for an eye, yeah. But was that ever like amended? You know what I (laughs) mean? Was it amended? (laughs) Did you hear what he asked? He wanted to know if in the old testament where it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, sort of thing. Okay. He wanted to know if that was ever amended. Yeah. I love the question. I love the question. Yeah. So the eye for the eye, uh the eye for eye, um a thing in the Old Testament was designed uh, originally to help judges figure out how we assess a consequence for a crime. So, if if I steal your car, then eye for eye means if I get caught and then I'm sent before the judge, then I have to give up my car because I stole your car. So it's a, it's a, how do you be equitable in that situation? Now what's kind of interesting is that by the time Jesus came along, that uh, principle of eye for an eye had, had moved out of the courts and into personal life. And so what started to happen was that in a tribal society, they started using that principle as how we get even with somebody else, if you do harm to my brother, well, then I get to do harm to your brother. So there was a corrupting that had taken place. And this often happens when people read stuff in the Bible and sort of lift it out of context and say, well, it says it right here. That means I can do it. And so when Jesus came along, Jesus kind of had an interesting way of amending things. Right. And what did Jesus have to say about um, about the law? He said, I came to what fulfill it, but not to abolish it. So he's redirecting us back to the law of love is what was to be the thing that governs our personal relationships with each other, but not so much in a court of law. Okay. The court is law, legal, uh, love is not really part of that equation, but it is a big chunk of our, of our relationship with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Is it still carried on, the whole
0: eye for an eye? Is it still carried on? Or has, it, has that
1: changed? Well, I don't know. I, I'm not a criminal justice person, um, so it'd be interesting to hear from somebody who, who has a greater um, expertise in that. It, it's hard to gauge how you assign a value to something that's intangible. So, like, if I, if I steal 20 bucks from you That's a tangible thing that can be measured and we can easily say, well, the consequence or the punishment is I got to restore the, make amends and restore the 20 bucks to you. Okay. But how do you measure the value of a life? See, how do you measure the value of somebody's reputation? How do you, how, how do you assign something to it that sort of sounds like, okay, you should be happy with this but you still lost that life. You see, you still lost that, that reputation. So that's a little harder one. That's a harder one. Okay. Um, Anybody, any other thoughts? Yeah.
3: I guess the thing about it is that I've kind of moved away from supporting capital punishment because our, our, our justice system is so inequitable to so many people. It is, yeah. And so many, um, I'll say prosecuting attorneys They're not looking for justice. They're looking for wins and losses.
1: It can be. Yeah, I would. Let's let's shape that a little bit by saying it can be. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not every prosecuting attorney is or every every lawyer. lawyer is bad. I have a couple in my family and they're actually pretty good people. So I'm a little sensitive, I guess, to that. Yeah. But that's but again, that's it. It's easy in a competitive world to make it all about wins and losses. It's just real easy to do that.
3: Yeah. I guess there's, there's enough evidence to say, <coughs> I think we're on shaky ground yeah. taking people's lives.
1: Well, and I think s- to some degree, maybe originally or at some point, somebody thought that if we, if we have capital punishment, that will serve as a deterrent. And I don't know that that's necessarily true. I don't think it was any more true in the Roman empire than it is today. But again, it's to sort of totally take something away would be to say, then there are, that there aren't some crimes that are so heinous that you just simply have, that's what you have to do. It's not that anybody wants it. Nobody jumps for joy at uh, witnessing a uh, execution of some kind, nobody does. Uh, And it does not bring closure. So you have to find that way. But at the same time, um, the interests of society has to be served sometimes too. And so what do you, what would you do with that? Okay. But that's why I think it's an open question in the sense that people of good faith and strong faith as Christians can really disagree about that. I, I think we can. And, and I would not see any difficulty with that. Okay.
6: Yeah. Uh, in answer to Richard's uh, thing. I just in my own personal opinion these people that do the mass murders that mm-hmm. use those, uh, R, those heinous R-16 right, and
5: right. go
6: into a classroom or into a church mm-hmm. and take innocent lives of people they don't even know. Right. I think that that is something that I could say capital crime is absolutely
5: Yeah.
1: But again, there would be people that would say on the other side. So we can respectfully disagree with each other on that and still be faithful to our faith. We still can. So um, that's kind of the thing we want to think about, too. Yeah, Phil.
0: Just one uh, instance in the Bible that I look towards that helped shape my view on capital punishment. Yeah. Uh, It's not exactly a one-to-one comparison, but just the instance when the crowd takes... Uh, the, the adulterer and throws her in front of Jesus saying, what should we do with this woman? Yeah. And, and the, the law says we should stone her. Right. And Jesus says, you know, let, let you who is without sin cast the first yeah. stone. Now, that's not to say that someone who has committed murder should go scot-free. Right. <laughs> but uh, I think there's a, a median in society that we can meet. Uh, through like life without parole or something yeah. to serve as an adequate punishment without violating yeah. the
1: fifth. Yeah, there's some question in that story. Do you know the one he's referencing the, in John 8? In fact, we're going to bring that story into our lesson for next week if we actually ever get done with the lesson <laughs> for this week. Um, with respect to that, because adultery was, was the sort of crime that was occurring. But there is some question about whether they could actually do it. Because they were occupied by the Roman government and the Roman government reserved uh, the right of uh, capital punishment for itself, for itself. That's why, why did the, why did they take Jesus to Pilate instead of just taking him out and crucifying him themselves? Well, because they had to get Romans uh, permission in order to do it. So there's some question about, but you know, they could have still, and they were using that situation To get at Jesus. They didn't care about her and they didn't even care. And, and we'll see it next week when we look at it in Deuteronomy or no Leviticus, where it talks about that. It's both the adulterer and the adulteress that gets stoned. And yet what did they do? They were, they were demonstrating a lack of justice by doing what? Dragging her in front of Jesus. And where's the guy, you know? it's hard to do adultery by yourself so that's uh, there was you know two people involved but but that tells you a little bit about how sometimes people can can cloak under the premise or the auspices of Oh, we want justice. But what it really is, they don't want that. It's something else. Okay? Yeah.
2: So how did you answer this question? Which one? (laughs) The one we're talking about, the state's policy of capital punishment. Does it violate the principle of the sacredness of life? I'm assuming you were addressed with that question. So how did you answer it? I said no. (laughs) That's what
5: I wanted to hear.
1: Well, because... Because, again, I I probably take a more traditional conservative view toward that that commandment that capital punishment is not murder. So that would be that would be my take on it. It is a taking of life. It's reserved for the most um, heinous of of crimes. Okay, it is that I'm a believer in. And, you know, you do the crime, you do the time. I mean, that's kind of kind of my orientation. I don't think that uh, anything is served by just simply letting people off the hook in terms of saying, well, you know, we have to be merciful. I think you can be merciful to people in prison, but I think they need to stay in prison if they have been legitimately convicted for something that they that they did. Now, if they're there, if they're there. And they were falsely accused or, you know, DNA didn't exist in their day. And that would, would be a different thing. You know, then, then part of being merciful is to make sure that they are there legitimately. And if they're not there legitimately, then we should do something with that. Absolutely. That's what I believe. So I, from, from my perspective, and I'm, I'm just speaking for myself here, is that I don't believe that capital punishment violates the sacredness of life. It's sad when it has to happen, okay? Like I said, nobody's happy about it. And it's a terrible thing that it would even be considered. But it needs to be. That's kind of where I come at from. Yeah, Debbie. Okay, so
2: I agree that they should stay in prison forever. Mm Now, I can't imagine if something happened to my children, I might feel differently.
1: You might. Mm
2: But how do you... In, your, in our mercy or forgiveness, how is the difference between abortion mm-hmm. and capital punishment? If you believe in pro-life, yeah. then how can you kill someone in capital punishment?
1: That's the hard thing. Where we come at abortion, I say it we, meaning from a conservative, biblical perspective. Okay, and I say it that way because... There are a lot of people that are not conservative in their biblical perspective. They are liberal in their biblical perspective. OK, but at least in terms of where Lutheran LCMS is coming from, is that abortion is murder. Now, it's, that's kind of a broad statement. There might be situations where in the case of rape or the case of uh, Perhaps of that the life of the mother, the physical life of the mother is called into question and, and now you have to make that terrible choice. OK, that's not uh, we would not consider that to be murder. It, yeah. Is it the taking of life? Yes. But that's why um, defining that fifth commandment as a murder issue, not as simply taking of life, helps us a little bit in terms of what's the intent of the, in that moment. Okay, I, I don't think that does that help a little bit? Okay. Okay. These are sticky questions. Are they not? Yeah, look at that. Our time's almost up. How sad, huh? <laughs> not really. <laughs> not really. Okay. Are we ready to go to the sixth commandment yet? <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to talk about the sixth commandment. That's what it is. Oh, we'll just go. Well, how about let's just go to the seventh commandment. Let's just do that. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, let's read together. The uh, sixth commandment at the top. And then let's also read uh, Luther's definition of that, please. Okay. Thou shalt not commit adultery as God's beloved cherish the sacredness of marriage in word and deed. We should fear and love God that we may lead a chaste and decent life in word and deed and each love and honor his or her spouse. Okay. Very good. So the place to start if we're gonna talk about adultery is to talk about marriage, right? Is to talk about what is marriage. That question is up in the air these days. And so where, how you define marriage will indicate where you fall in terms of the debate. And particularly when we get into issues about gay marriage and, and living together and kind of all those things in terms of uh, what, are the, what, what is the definition and how broad can that definition be and still stay within the biblical mandate is, I think, the question for today. Okay? So we'll see. So what is marriage? Biblically, it is the lifelong union of one man and one woman into one flesh. And the foundational verses that, that we lean on for that is Genesis and Matthew. So we can't say it's only an Old Testament thing that needs to be amended. Correct? Right. <laughs> All right. We can't say that because because Jesus himself draws back on Genesis in terms of uh, helping us understand what marriage is. OK. So would somebody read Genesis two twenty one to 24 out loud, please? So
6: the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh.
1: Okay, thank you. So a couple things there. Have you, uh, ever, have you ever pondered to yourself why it is that men do not understand women and women do not understand men. Is is there anybody here that's ever wondered those things? Yeah, we all do. Well, now we know that there's a biblical answer for that. So how did what did God use in order to make women? Stem cells. Stem cells. What did God use to make men? Dirt. Dirt. <laughs> there it is. See, so the next time you're looking at the opposite sex, and you just kind of you're just kind of shaking your head, you know, then eventually you have to look up to God because He was the one that started it in the first place. All right, all right. The, another little thing that shows up in the Hebrew that isn't so present in the. Uh, in the English is in verse 23, where, you know, where God brings uh, Eve to Adam. And then he says, this is now bone of my blood, et cetera. In the Hebrew, he goes, wow.
5: <laughs>
1: yes. And so that's kind of an interesting and kind of a cool thing is the idea of keeping the wow in your marriage for those of you that are married. Keep the wow in there, whatever that wow would be. You know, and it doesn't have to be like, you know, some exciting, brilliant thing in the moment. But it's just the idea of keeping that perspective. I'm going to keep that perspective of the wow, even though I'm shaking my head going, I have no idea where you're coming from. All right. It still is. It still is that uh, that idea. Okay. so anyway, this is the first marriage. All right. This is the first marriage, the bringing to and the uniting. Those are the biblical words for. For marriage, All right. And that's where it first started. All right. Now we get to Matthew 19 where Jesus is talking and we're going to we're going to explore this a little bit more in depth um, next week as well, because questions of marriage and divorce came to Jesus from the Pharisees uh, uh, in, in his day, wanting to know when is it OK to divorce and when it is not OK to divorce and where did Jesus stand on the issue? So we're going to explore this a little bit more next week. But but at any rate, in Matthew 19, uh, would somebody read that, please, out loud, Richard?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God is joined together, let no one separate.
1: OK, and those are actually verses that we use in the marriage ceremonies that we do uh, with respect to after the vows are, are pronounced. So so that's uh, something that's been included in there. So, again, Jesus is drawing back to. The idea that God in the beginning created Adam and Eve, and then he brought them together, and then now you have marriage, and then adds that extra part there at the end, what God has joined together, let no one separate. I think we'll look at that in a little bit more depth next time, because it sort of raises the question, what if God did not bless that marriage Or is it just that if you get married, then God has 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 joined this. And then that sort of puts into place the question about where how does divorce fit in, particularly how does divorce fit in for people of faith, for Christians? And what do you do with that? Okay, so uh, sort of whetting your appetite a little bit for the idea that you better show up next week or else. (laughs) Okay. All right. Very good. All right. So that's that's in essence what marriage is. All right. Um, from a from a conservative, I keep saying this, conservative biblical perspective. Okay, these verses serve the foundation for why we're opposed to gay marriage. Okay, and but simply by virtue of my saying that is already controversial. Okay, but I say it from the perspective of a conservative biblical perspective because there are many Christians today who are, do not approach these verses from a conservative biblical perspective. It's more from a, um, maybe a liberal, we would just sim- simply say to pit the two against each other or progressive. Some people use that word to try to, uh, in some sense, have some compassion for people who struggle with same sex attraction. And the question is how can we pastorally minister to people who have same sex attraction when the when the biblical definition and the biblical mandate limits them and in such a way that they can't be married? What do you do with that? See, how do you minister to it and how do you show mercy and compassion at the same time that you're not violating the principles of scripture? And that's the crux of the problem. Okay. In our own Lutheran church body, We've come out very publicly and very conservatively saying that we're opposed to gay marriage. OK, we're opposed to that from a biblical conservative, biblical perspective. That's the hard thing. OK, how do I minister to that uh, individually from a pastoral perspective is I come at it from that basis. But that doesn't mean that there's not some um, Some need for ongoing conversation. And we're trying to figure out, I think, in some sense, in our Lutheran um, sort of DNA is how do we respond to that in a way that keeps the conversation going between us and somebody else? Same sex attraction is a real thing. It's not made up. It's a real thing. And there are some people who are born with that. Some people have it and know it. And then there's some people who have it and know it later. And what do we do with that? So where I come at it from the place where I come at it, I'm just talking again, me, Jim Hottie is I want to sit down and visit with somebody about it and not just come out and have these big um, condemnations of it publicly or in sermons or anything like that. There are some things in the Christian walk that are reserved for face-to-face, you and me, one-on-one, okay? But there are other churches where it's a regular diet of condemnation, and that kind of shuts down the conversation and the opportunity to, to share God's word and to talk about where God's word is coming from, okay? A concern that I do have, because there are churches in our area some are lutheran some are other denominations who are who promote the idea that if we retranslate what the Bible has to say and the words that the Bible has always given with respect to homosexuality and other things related to that, then they're redefining what the Bible says. Okay. And the danger is there that if you do that with these verses, then what other verses are you going to do that with as well? And so uh, again, there's a wide range, I think of perspective here. And if that is something that is on somebody's mind, or in their own experience, I want to sit down with you and see where you're at. Does that make sense? And, and that is threatening for some people, I suppose, because it sort of sounds wishy-washy and kind of like, oh, you know, you're trying to be all things to all people. Oh, well, yeah, I guess so. But, but that's the starting place. That's not the ending place. That's the starting place. And that's, I'm giving you my pastoral perspective on that. Yeah, Carl.
4: I guess today's society situation is society has made made room for this, uh, and there's there's, a, there's basically the, the the judicial or or civil marriage. Yeah. That's available. Yes. And then there's the, the church marriage. Yes. And. And I can understand where there's a Christian who also had or a Christian couple, same sex, yeah. that would like to be married in the church. I yes. can understand that. Yeah. I don't condone it, but that's personal. Right, right. Okay. Uh, but the, I, I do have a problem where the, the LGBT efforts today mm-hmm. are pushing it into our society, into mm-hmm. our churches, yeah. not, to, not because they can't get married, they don't want to get married civilly, right. but they want to make a point mm-hmm. That in effect violates our principle. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, the, the, when that happens, even you know, like a cake maker right. issue, I mean, those, right. those things happen. That, that really does upset. Personally, upset me. Yeah. You know, because there is room for them to do what, whatever they
1: wish. The state now allows for that. I think the hard thing, sometimes, is that when we, in a more conservative Christian perspective, feel that that we're somehow supposed to embrace that and then make it that we're supposed to make it okay. See and, and the, the the dilemma for us is is that we look at these scripture verses quite literally, frankly, and and so then, the attempt to take those very same verses and translate, retranslate them—it's not even translate; it's retranslate—and say, "Well, here's what it meant in that day." Okay, that's legitimate to do that. But then to take that and uh, use that to justify this change in in biblical teaching. <laughs> is that's way too far, that's way too far away from, from where we're coming from. So it's just, uh, it's an ongoing um, conversation. It's an ongoing debate. It's an ongoing struggle. But uh, my concern always is, is that the individual people and in particular, the families and in particular families, in particular, the, the parents, because that's who I end up working a lot with is the parents who come to me. And, do not, and they're good people of faith, and they raise their kid in the church and the whole thing, and they do not know what to do when their child comes out and says, I, I'm attracted to people of my same gender. They don't know what to do. And they're terrified that that child is now, um, in que- his salvation is in question because of that. That's, just, that's such a hard thing to do when you've been raised with that uh, teaching for the most part, your whole life. What do you do with it? And so my concern always is, is how do we make sure that we don't just have this broad stroke sweep go on uh, with individual families and individual people that get caught up in that. And then there's no opportunity for us to sit down and talk about it. And so that's the deal for me. That's the deal for me. But you, you would need to know, and probably already do, that not every pastor shares that sentiment. Okay, not every Lutheran pastor shares that sentiment. And and so for some they are operating on a different uh, in a different place than I am. Okay? And that's probably maybe a little bit of my counseling perspective, taking that view, but I'm I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Okay? Yeah. yeah.
6: In some way do you not think that the verse that we read that said, What God has joined together let no man put asunder yeah. that was a man and woman. Yeah. And that was God's intention for marriage. Sure. So how do you how do you deal with that? And otherwise, I mean, when, when you're joining a man to a man brought to a woman, right. you're, you're in violation of that verse. That's
1: right. right. You're That's right. You are. You are. Again, from our conservative biblical perspective, that's why we don't practice gay marriage. We don't right. we don't do uh, gay marriages in our church. But there are other churches that do. And they base that on taking the same words that we look at here, and, and we'll see them next week when we talk about it more, the same words to get retranslated. But
6: well, the danger of that to me is if you're going to take one commandment and change it, mm-hmm. how long is it going to be before
1: that? Every commandment. You can't, that can be a danger. Okay, and that's why, that's why I would prefer to handle that on an individual basis with somebody to find out if that's where they're coming from. It's not guaranteed that people would do that, but the the danger is there that they would do that. And so if I justify one thing on the basis of changing the words, well then I could do that with others, okay? So uh, uh, do you hear what I'm saying? Am Am I condoning gay marriage or anything? No, I'm not, but I certainly want this to be something that we deal with on a personal basis, a one-on-one basis. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Toughy, isn't it? Okay. So what is adultery? We're going to resolve that in about five minutes. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you can, you can tell we're going to, we're going to spend some time in here because this really touches on a number of societal things. It really does. And how how do you be in the world as the church? How do you do that without giving into the world? There's a likelihood of blowing it somewhere, of swinging either to the worldly side or to the you know, churchly side. How, how, do you, how do you navigate that? And that's, that's what makes pastoral care, pastoral work hard. It's not a simple world anymore. And uh, so anyway, we do the best we can with it. So what is adultery? It's to give the love and affection of one's heart and or physical self body to someone outside of his or her marriage. Okay. Now, in the most traditional view of that or perspective of that, it would be going to have a sexual affair with somebody else. That's what it would be. But as we see in terms of what Jesus has to say, it doesn't necessarily have to entail just your physical body. It could be also your spirit or your affection or your heart. Okay, would somebody read Matthew five twenty-seven to 30, please out loud? Preston, would you read that, please? You have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Okay, now apparently he's only talking to men here. I
5: know. I noticed that. Yeah, doesn't
1: Women apparently do not lust after men. I never
5: thought about that way. doesn't
1: really men. I know. I know, but see, that's the complexity of a woman and the simplicity of a man. That's, I don't know. I can't figure that out either. Do what? I know, I know. I mean, you know, so apparently that's just part of what a guy does. And, and I don't know. Yeah. Cause now why would he, why would he do that? Why would he say he? you know, uh, look at a woman? Why would he do that? Because why? Yeah, Scott.
5: I, an I
1: for that question) <laughs> Yeah, but I'd like to hear what you have to say about the question I just asked. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. that's a, Yeah. What was your other question?
4: That's what I'm talking about. Oh. <laughs> Has
1: that been amended because? <laughs> <laughs> well, if we believe that in equal rights for women and men, then we could say his or her and anyone who looks at a man lustfully. Well, we could say that, couldn't we? Should we say that? We should, we should say that, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, you've suddenly become kind of vague in your answers. I've noticed that. Yeah. Jacob?
0: I was more so, a question. Was adultery
5: kind of like a
1: It's included in the laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Sometimes with those laws in there, we wish that they would have put them into categories, you know, because they're all kind of listed. And so some of them are religious laws. Some of them are ceremonial laws. Some of them are judicial laws. And some of them are relationship laws. Okay. So the issue from God's perspective, at least in the Old Testament, was that he didn't like adultery. But what's also interesting, how often in the prophets, adultery is equated with idolatry. So when the Israelite uh, people would give themselves over to the Canaanite gods and would worship them, okay? I mean, temple prostitution, that was a big part of that, but it was also just, you're being unfaithful to me. You're giving your affection of your spirit, your soul, and your body to some God other than Yahweh. And so God viewed that from the prophet's perspective as being the same as adultery, okay? So there is a link between the two, all right? But it wasn't... I mean, even though they said that you could stone somebody to death for adultery, um, that was—I think that that what that was was a sense of how God feels about faithfulness to one another. Okay, I don't know if they actually ended up practicing that. All right. Okay. All right. All right. So again, it's this idea, though, of the heart as well as the body. It's not just simply the body in terms of what would be the definition of, uh, of, of adultery. Okay. All right. Couple little notes here. Um, What do you make of that word lustfully? Is lust a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing and a bad thing. What's good about lust? Depends on who it's directed at. Oh yes. Right. Yeah. And it's a powerful driver. Okay, it's kind of all about attraction. So what is it kind of that gets us attracted to somebody in the first place? All right. If you want to think of it in terms of the human emotion part, you could say lust. That's not a bad thing. All right. But obviously, because it's so powerful, you it can easily control you rather than you control it. And that's the caution that he's giving this here. All right. So the caution is, is that you don't give yourself over to lust, particularly for somebody that you're not married to, because what it changes your perspective. When a person continually and habitually gives in to lust, what happens is, is that that person less and less sees the other person as a person. And what you start to do is see that person as an object of self gratification. That's the danger of lust. See? And so in that sense, it starts to change your perspective on other human beings. And so what Jesus says about that, he says, you know, you could have, you could do adultery with somebody and never have any sort of physical relationship with them. Um, Next week, we'll touch a little bit on um, the issue of pornography because the issue of pornography addresses that very thing is that lust is involved with pornography but it may never involve an actual uh, physical relationship with somebody, but it's still a a very addictive and very powerful uh, driver in the lives of a lot of people. Okay. And then the last part is, isn't it interesting that he talks about the idea that this can impact your spiritual life. He says, it's better to go into heaven with one eye and one arm and one leg than it is to go to hell. And so I think that one of the things that often happens in our society today is people say, oh, what I do is my own business in my own life. And it has no effect or no impact on anything else. And what Jesus is reminding us of is the impact could be eternal, could be eternal. So, see, there are lots of cautions in there that sometimes we ignore and say, oh, that's not going to happen to me. Okay, we will stop here. And uh, we'll pick it up next week uh, uh, with respect to sex outside of marriage. We'll also talk some about uh, the good, the upside, right? Marriage and how to make marriage strong and kind of how to resist temptation and kind of all those things, too. So it's not all bad news. All right. There's a lot of good news here. Right. And that's a good thing. All right. Well, let's uh, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the way that your word speaks to us. In, in, in very clear and plain ways. And then other times, Lord, it's, we're trying to kind of figure out what you're talking about. But help us to continue to trust in you each day, to trust in your word, that it's a, it's a solid foundational truth for our lives. And then help us to be responsive to the struggles that each person has so that we can approach that and certainly in a compassionate way, but at the same time in a way that remains true and faithful to, uh, to what we believe in the scriptures. Watch over us this week, dear Lord. We're coming into a new year. Keep everyone safe and mindful and, until uh, we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.